we have come together more than I think at any other point in this country's history. This country has a really, really, I guess almost every country does, but we have a very polarized, very divisive history, especially when it comes to race and sexuality and, and religion. And, and right now is one of the times in history where we kind of all have the same basic principles. And now we're just fighting over smaller stuff, but we, we blow it up into much bigger seeming seemingly bigger arguments because it's all magnified by the internet and it's all you know everyone has a bullhorn now you have your own you have your twitter and you have your facebook and you've got your bullhorn and you're going to go out there and yell about your opinions and the fact is you probably agree with 90 percent of what the other people are yelling you know the, the other the other people who are yelling you probably agree on 90 percent of the issues but you're going to use your bullhorns to yell about the the one thing that you guys can't agree on and that's going to become the defining characteristic of that other person to you. And, you know, I, I think it's a lot of it's not real. A lot of it's just manufactured. Welcome to Neurons to Nirvana, a platform for creative forces that embrace the unconventional and the quest for artistry, humanity, innovation, health and healing of the mind and soul. Join me, Tom Hartridge, on a journey celebrating experiences unbound by physical borders or traditional norms. From inside the mind to the far reaches of the universe, this is Neurons to Nirvana. Continuing our discussion on the craft and artistry of stand-up comedy, improvisation, and the platform of podcasting to express yourself, I am joined today by Shane Rogers, stand-up comedian and co-host of the Midnight Facts for Insomniacs podcast. Before we jump in, it would mean so much to me if you took a moment to follow me on Twitter or Instagram. Also, please like and subscribe to the show on your preferred listening platform, as well as to the YouTube channel, Neurons to Nirvana Podcast. Shane spends weeks preparing and consistently deep dives into researching obscure topics and themes for every episode. Both he and co-host Duncan McEwen provide a refreshing take and unique style of humor and entertainment for their listeners. Visit the show notes for links to his website and podcast. On this episode, we get a chance to learn more about Shane himself, and I have to admit, while we shared many similarities, he surprised me just as frequently with a different perspective. Shane, good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you joining me. You're out of California, correct? Out of California. I started in San Francisco and grew up in San Francisco. Uh, I now live in Santa Cruz, California, which is well known for the the boardwalk and uh, UC Santa Cruz. I think that's the only, those are our only claims to fame here. If you've ever seen the movie Lost Boys. Yeah, the, or well, the banana slugs, Pulp yep. Fiction. That's, that's right. A, <laughs> John Travolta used to have a UC Santa Cruz shirt. There's a buddy yeah. of mine. He went and looked at the school. That definitely left a, an indelible impression on my memory. Yeah. See Travolta in that shirt. Like, that's that right. A banana slug. <laughs> That's their claim to fame. They don't have any other claim to fame because they've never won anything. Uh, this ban banana slugs don't take their sports too seriously, I think, other than maybe Frisbee golf or, or ultimate Frisbee. Uh, but beyond that, they're mostly, I think, it's pretty tongue-in-cheek. But yeah, it's a great place. Uh, it's a great place to be. And it's been a fun place to do comedy. Being so close to San Francisco, uh, it's nice to be able to go to the Bay Area really easily. 
you started in comedy how long ago? It's been just about 10 years. I've been trying to kind of figure out what my, you know, I, I didn't like have a diary back then or anything. I wasn't really taking it all that seriously at first. And so uh, I don't, and, and I guess I'd have to figure out like what counts as starting in comedy. Cause I actually started by doing a comedy class. And so I don't know if I'd say I was doing comedy at that point. I was trying to learn comedy and kind of trying to figure stuff out. Uh, so it took it took a while before I'd say I was actually doing comedy, but I guess it's been almost uh, almost exactly probably 10 years from when I did. I think my first I guess my first set would be when I said or when I would say that I started doing comedy. And that was almost exactly 10 years ago. And you said you're originally from San Francisco. So your first show is the Purple Onion, right? Yeah, although I was living in Santa Cruz at the time. So for me, comedy kind of all comes back to I went to UC Davis. And so uh, I went That's from. Fair high school in San Francisco and then the East Bay. I graduated actually from Albany High, which is in the East Bay and then UC Davis. And I had a uh, I had a comedic column in the in the UC Davis newspaper in the Aggie there. And when I graduated, I had written all these columns because I used to it was supposed to be funny. It was like a weekly humor column. And I had written, I, I was so sort of proactive that I would always write ahead of time. So I had all these extra columns with like a ton of sort of jokes and funny stories and things in them. And so I started a blog with all of these stories that I would just put up. It was basically just columns that I hadn't ever published in the, the newspaper. And I got one of the columns sort of got some traction. It went for back in the day, it went like minorly viral. Um, and a ton of people were messaging me and emailing me. And one of them was a woman who worked at the, at a comedy club in LA at the time. And then she ended up, she ended up moving to Chicago and opening, uh, and, and managing a comedy club there. And so she was a huge fan of the blog and she said, Hey, have you thought about doing stand up?" And at the time, it's not something that had ever been on my radar, but, it, it sounded like maybe it would be fun. So I actually flew out to Chicago and did, uh, I hung out on New Year's Eve at, at her, at the comedy club there and met like Dion Cole and a bunch of other comics and hung out. And I kind of, it just sucked me in and I said, okay, I got to do this. I really want to do this. And so when I got back, I did a comedy class and that was interesting. I, I don't know that I would necessarily recommend it. I think it was good for me. I don't think they teach you how to write comedy. Don't join a comedy class if you think you're going to learn how to write comedy. But it's great to meet other aspiring comics and kind of get some support. And uh, and so that was how it all started. Did you do improv? No, not in any serious way. I did like improv games and things in college and, and just for fun, but not improv is terrifying to me. Even now, like we were talking a little bit before we started recording about the fact that I don't really get after a while, you don't get nervous anymore as a comedian because you've just done this so many times. If I were to go up and try to do improv, I would be, I would be shaking in my boots. I'd be terrified. Why do you think that? <laughs> What's so daunting about it? Because I'm really, I'm someone who's very, uh, I, you know, I like to have everything written out. I like to I'm, I don't even like crowd work that much as a comedian, although I force myself to do it as much as I can, um, just because I think it is important to be able to think on your feet and be able to engage the crowd. And sometimes it's the only way to get their attention if it's a rough night uh, is to talk to them and bring them in. But 
it's not my favorite part. I like knowing what I'm going to say, going up there, having things that I've thought about that I want to talk about. Um, I'm just very premeditated with everything. And so the idea that I have to just off the cuff come up with a character or something witty, that's scary to me. It, and people, th I think people assume that comedians are all really quick-witted and good at improv. And I think in my natural life, I think I'm fairly witty, but it's not, you know, that's just not something I want to have to rely on because that's not my strength. I think my strength is writing. You know, com comics, most good comics are writers. Uh, and, you know, so, and then the best of them also have a really great ability to go up and perform and, uh, and, and convey what they've written in a very compelling way. But all that stuff is written. You know, so many people who think that comedians go up and improvise everything they did. No, if you watch any comic two nights in a row, <laughs> you're going to be seeing the same show. They might do some crowd work that's different. They might throw in a, a different word or a different sentence here and there. But they've got stuff that works and they're going to work on that on that, you know, hour until it's set. And then they'll go up and do that exact hour two nights in a row when they record their when they record their special. They're recording usually two nights in a row, the exact same special. And then they kind of enter, you know, cut in whatever they need. If there's a good crowd shot or if, you know, one of the jokes went better one night than the other night. They even wear the exact same clothes so that they can cut in between the two nights. So, yeah, I mean, there's so little of comedy that's actually improvised. And so, yeah, improv is a totally different beast and it terrifies me. I saw Sarah Silverman bomb her ass off at the comedy store and she's amazing. She's hilarious, but she was trying all new stuff and she just went up there with a notebook and she put it on the little chair and some of it worked. A couple jokes worked and then a bunch of stuff didn't. And she was just unfazed. She was like crossing off the joke. All right. Nope. Not that one. Not that one. Oh, you like that one? I was OK. That's surprising. And she kind of would circle <laughs> one on the notebook and go like, oh, I didn't think that one was going to work. You know, even she's a, an absolute pro and she's been doing this for way longer than me. And she still goes up there and just tries jokes and sees if they work. You, So many people think that like comics get to a point where they just they're so good that they know that everything they go up and say is going to be funny. No, there's not a single comic who doesn't go up and throw out a joke and go, wow, I really thought that was going to work and it got nothing. And yeah, it's it's a it's a process of elimination. You write all these jokes, you go up, you try them out, you figure out which ones are good, and then you start honing those jokes. It's like you're a miner and you're digging for the gold in there, and then you try to expand on that. You, you say, okay, this bit works, and now I can do. You know, can I do more with this? Can I turn this into something bigger? And it's it is it's absolutely a process. When was the last time exactly you've been on stage? So. I've been on stage actually fairly recently. I did a show at the punchline. Uh, the booker for the punchline reached out to me and I, ha I hadn't done comedy in, you know, over a year. And uh, it didn't really I, I did like one or two of those zoom shows at the very beginning of COVID. And it just was not for me. Um, I really I need the crowd. It, there's no point for me in doing I, I don't want to just talk to a laptop. So um, for me, it, it just that wasn't going to be a path forward. So I just put it all on hold and I went up and I was, we did talk about this a little bit. It was the first time that I had been nervous at doing comedy in years. And so that was kind of fun. I, I did do mostly old stuff. I had written only a couple new things. Um, I kind of, you know, I, I went, I went the cowardly route and just said, okay, I'm going to do old stuff so that I know it, it works. And I, I don't want to subject myself to a bunch of new COVID material that probably a bunch of other people have already said. Uh, so I went up and did mostly similar set to what I had been working on right before COVID. 
and uh, and it was great. It was so much fun. I, I went up on a Sunday at the Punchline um, in San Francisco, and it was great. It was a the crowd was sort of socially distanced a little bit. They're they're getting back to more normal now, but uh, but there was still the the chairs were a little farther apart, the tables were a little farther apart, and that was weird. You know, you're used to everything being packed in, and laughter is very infectious and the 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 more you know a comedian wants to see a packed crowd you want to go out there and see a bunch of people really close together they're all going to sort of catch each other's energy and the laughs spread you know it like a like a virus through the crowd you can feel it kind of like a move like a wave through a crowd and it's so it was a little weird it was weird to feel like everything was a bit disconnected um but i did get that same you know, I, I got the kind of butterflies that I hadn't had since maybe my first couple of years doing comedy. And that was really fun. And then uh, and then it was really it was really rewarding to get up there and, and get those same laughs and feel like, oh, yeah, I got this. You know, as soon as I got on stage, it just felt all those nerves went away and I just felt comfortable. And it it was a really fun, nice feeling to be like, oh, I can I can do this. You know, I didn't I, this isn't something it is like riding a bike. It's not something you lose. And I went up there and immediately uh, uh, felt at home. And so that was great. But that was the only set I've done in almost, you know, almost two years now. And two of my favorite comedy clubs closed down for good. And I've just been uh, focused on the podcast. I'm sure we'll talk a little about the podcast. But I, you know, that's what kind of took off during COVID for us, me and another comedian. And uh, so I just haven't been focused on comedy. But that set at the punchline did make me really miss it. And I'm definitely going to start writing some more stuff. I've got a little, you know, not a notebook. I don't write physically, but I'm dictating to my phone at this point. So I've got a little folder in my phone with a bunch of stuff that I'm working on. And uh, I'm going to get back to doing some shows soon. How soon do you think? Well, I'm definitely going to start at some mics. Uh, that is, like we said, it's a process. You can't go, you know, I would not go to the punchline next weekend and try all my new stuff. It's just, there's no way it would, half of it would bomb. It would be, you know, it would be a rough set and uh, I'm not going to do that to uh, a paying booker. So, uh, so I'm going to start at some, some open mics and even the biggest comics in the world still go to open mics. You would be shocked at who you can see, uh, especially if you're in LA, it's amazing. You'll go to these little bars, these little open mics in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, Dave Attell walks in or, you know, Crystalia just, it, it, they come in, they got to try stuff and they walk in. And, you know, it, the nice thing is if you're established, they'll put you up right away. So these guys just walk in and hop on stage and do some jokes and then they leave and they drive to the next place and they hop on stage and try some, and they, they, you know, cross one joke off, tweak another joke, fix something. Okay. That didn't work. I'm going to add some words to it. Go to the next open mic, try it there. Okay. That worked a little better. Go to another open mic. It's a, you do a little circuit and you work those jokes until you've got something going. And then you try them on a slightly bigger stage. Maybe you go to, you know, kind of a mid-range club and jump on someone else's set. You know, you say, hey, can I go up before you and do a, five minutes? And you try those bits and you go, okay, they worked. And then after a while, you've, you've kind of honed them and you, you figure out where they go in your set. And then you go do, you know, a, a paid show. So it's, it's a process. And I'm going to, I'll start paying my dues at, at little open mics. And then the nice thing is I still have all my, you know, all the bookers are still pretty much the same. So, uh, I am getting a lot of messages about getting, getting work. So as soon as I'm ready, uh, there are, the shows are there. It's just a matter of me feeling like I can deliver 
because I, I I don't want to go and give them my my B game, you know. Well, you got to start somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to get the rust off, right? Yeah, and it's good. It's good to do those open mics. It's humbling, you know. It's sometimes you're you go to these mics, and the best comics in the world will bomb in these places because you know there's 15 people there, and five of them are watching a basketball game in the back. You know, they're just a lot of these are bars. A lot of these are, you know, I mean, I've done open mics at Mexican restaurants while people are eating dinner, and they do not want comedy. <laughs> And so, you know, it's if if your jokes work there, they're going to work anywhere. But a lot of stuff is going to bomb. So it, it, it is paying your dues. It, it can be painful. So let's talk about your podcast, uh, Midnight Facts for Insomniacs. How yeah. was how did you come up with that title? Where, uh, so what's the premise behind it? I had a podcast before this with another comedian uh, called Midnight Speakeasy. And we had done so <laughs> part of the reason that this is called Midnight Facts for Insomniacs is sheer laziness because we already had sort of a logo and some other stuff related to midnight. And it was had to do with the fact that me and him were both uh, insomniacs. We're both not necessarily insomniacs, more night owls than insomniacs. I just I'm up all night. And so when uh, when he actually moved out of town, he moved to uh, sorry to Nevada. He moved to Las Vegas. And when he moved, I decided I, I wanted to reconfigure the podcast and kind of come up with a new concept and and find a new host, a new co-host. And but I didn't want to have to completely reinvent the wheel. And I had all this, I had this all the logo, and I had all this stuff that was midnight themed. And so uh, the other my co-host Duncan, who I've known since I was like sixteen, um, he and I, he and I sort of we have a dynamic where I've always been the kind of scholastic one between us. He's more of, he's kind of a silly guy. He's sort of a doofus. He's a, you know, he, he's a, it's, it's a good dynamic because I'm definitely more of, you know, the, uh, the academic and he's more of the class clown. And so uh, I've always sort of taught him things. I'm, I don't, I wouldn't say that, uh, He's very knowledgeable, but I think I, I have more factual information and he has maybe more street smarts and practical information, but I've always been kind of correcting him. So he'll, you know, throw out some facts and I'll, I was always the actually guy in that relationship, right? Like, no, no, actually, blah, blah, blah. I was yeah. the, annoy the annoying one in that relationship. Uh, and so we've had this dynamic and he said, you know, it'd be fun if, if we did a show where we kept it fresh by having different topics but also maybe you could teach me stuff because that's what you do anyway. And I said, well, that's interesting because that sounds a lot like a podcast that I like. There's a podcast called The Dollop that I really love, which is very similar. It's two comics and one comedian kind of tells the other one. He, he brings a bunch of information about a particular subject and tells the other comedian about it. And then the other comedian kind of riffs on it. Um, and I was like, that's, you know, I don't want to recreate The Dollop. That sounds really similar to something I already like. And he said, well, you know, let's let's put our own spin on it. And and they do only historical topics, uh, long form. They're they're doing like two hours and they're very kind of zany. And uh, and we're just we're, so we kind of found our own niche and uh, it is sort of similar. I, I bring it a topic every week that is actually chosen by our fans. So we have a discord community. There's a few hundred people in there all the time. They're always talking about the podcast. It's really cool to drop in there every now and then and see the 
the conversations that are going on. And I put up a poll and they vote every every week and we they choose the topic. And then I go off and I do my research and, you know, bring it into to Duncan and tell Duncan all about it. And then he, you know, get his reaction. And it's just we got really lucky in that we started this right before COVID. And it was just the right time. And uh, people were looking for things to listen to, I think, and things to entertain them. And it just kind of hit at the right time. And, you know, it, it really it got a lot more successful than I had anticipated. So we are uh, we're very lucky and very fortunate to have our insomniacs, all the fans. And uh, it's been great. It's it's been really a lot of fun. And I'm you know, it's it's a different it's a different experience than doing stand up comedy for sure. But there is a lot of feedback and that's what makes it workable for me. There's, you know, we're constantly getting messages and emails and suggestions and we're in the discord chatting with fans. And so in some ways it's even more of a give and take than comedy was because for comedy, you know, once you leave the club, you're out of touch with all those people that you just told jokes to that you just made laugh. You don't see them until maybe they go to a show later down the line. But with the podcast, as soon as we release an episode, all those fans are immediately talking to me. They're all messaging me and they're telling me about, oh, you didn't talk about this aspect of, you know, we did our last one was on historical sieges uh, through the years. And, you know, a lot of a lot of people had a lot to say. So they always they will message me with either things that, you know, that I should talk about next time or something that we missed or something that they thought was funny. And so there's just so much of a give and take, surprisingly, with a medium that really is should be one sided. It's just us talking to into microphones and putting it out on the internet. But uh, but it really is. It, it is a conversation with our fans in some ways. When did you start taking input as far as the topics from your listeners? For instance, the one of one of the ones I listened to, the history of the asylum. Yeah. Uh, did your your fans came up with that one? They did. Yeah. So what we do is we have a channel in the Discord that is for topic suggestions. So they all uh, just throw in a bunch of ideas. And then from the ones that I would be interested in doing, I put the I compile a big list. And so there's another channel in there that's just a huge list. And then every week I go through and kind of decide which ones seem interesting to me. And from that, I pull about five out of there and I put them in a poll. And then they choose based on that poll. So you know, it, it is a kind of a give and take. I don't, I don't want to get pushed into doing a subject that I really wouldn't want to do, which I did early on. I felt more obligated, I think, to go with what the fans wanted. If they sent me, a, you know, we, we had very few fans in the beginning, just mostly it was just kind of my comedy fans. I had sort of sent out a message to all the people that I had on ma- my mailing list and some other people, hey, we're doing, a, we're doing a podcast. And so it was a small but dedicated group. And I really felt like I need to, make sure that I'm doing the things that you, that are going to appeal to them. So a cu- one, for instance, that never got published that we didn't end up doing was someone had suggested they wanted to hear about children who have murdered people. So like child murderers, but not, not murderers of children, but murderers who are children. And I did a That's good a amount of research. <laughs> pretty rough. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I did a, a go ahead. No, I was just saying that's a pretty grim subject matter. Yeah, so that one was really grim. And I got about a few days into the research for that one. And I like to sort of write out 
the episodes, I sort of, uh, for what I'm going to say, it's not fully scripted, but I do write out a lot of notes. Um, and as I was going through my notes, it was just, I was like, I don't know how we're going to make this funny. And I don't know how this could, I just felt like, like I needed to take a shower after reading this stuff. I mean, this is about little kids killing people and it was a lot of little kids killing other little kids. And I was like, this is just awful. And so we ended up not doing that. And I learned a lesson, which is, you know, don't, I, as much as I want the insomniacs to have the final say, uh, those subjects have to appeal to me or it's not going to be a good episode. So, uh, so I try to choose the ones for the poll that are the ones that are most interesting to me that particular week. We, we've been doing this podcast for almost a couple of years, two years now, I guess. And uh, so maybe we'll run out of subjects sometime and I'll be like, you know what? I still have those notes for that one. And maybe I just need to be a better comedian and writer. Maybe I'll get to the point where I can make that funny somehow. But boy, it wasn't. It wasn't working. Yeah. You did one on NFTs and Bitcoin. Yeah. Crypto. Yeah. Yeah. What's your take on that? Like as far as the stock market? That one was really interesting to do because I didn't know a lot about crypto. Um, and I, I did a pretty deep dive. I'm very into tech stuff for the most part. I'm, I'm pretty tech savvy, I think. But, uh, but I, I didn't understand much about the blockchain and the technology behind cryptocurrency before doing that episode. And it was really interesting. I mean, I think that there are some amazing, you know, Bitcoin is very polarizing. I think there are people who are super pro crypto and hey, invest everything in cryptocurrency and it's going to it's going to revolutionize the world economies and it's the democratization of currency. People get very excited about it. And I think at this point who knows there i think it has a lot of potential i think in the future certainly all currency will be digital i i am very anti cash i just don't even want especially after covid the last thing i want is like to ever hold another dollar bill that's been like stuffed in someone's sock or something you know it's just ugh yeah the idea of money <laughs> is is just filthy and disgusting so all currency should be digital regardless but you know using the blockchain is it is a pretty amazing technology right now. I think it is not uh, everything that it, that it can be and everything it's hyped up to be right now. It's really an investment. If you're buying uh, Bitcoin, you're not using it for the most part to buy things, which is the idea behind it, which is the big idea, right? That we're going to use Bitcoin as a currency. Most people are buying Bitcoin as an investment right now. It's just, it's like a stock and it's, you know, to the moon, right? They just, everyone wants to see it go, go through the roof and make them a bunch of money. But very few people are using it in the way that I think it is most uh, impactful, which is to actually take sort of government currency out of the picture and have a worldwide currency that anyone can, can send to each other over the internet, uh, which has a lot of potential, but it's not reaching its potential yet. So we'll see. Jury's out. It's just so volatile. That's the... Um, and. It it also it mimics the stock market and i got into crypto and then what i quickly realized is is i don't know shit about it and it's 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 scary because you don't know who to believe or or, or who's a a viable resource and and actually knows what they're talking about i, I mean you know people compare it to like gold but as as an asset but then you 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 watch it plummet from like 65,000 to 32 in a matter of days or 
couple weeks or whatever. Yeah, well, it's not, you know, it's not backed by any specific government. There's, there's no, and, and there's nothing substantial behind it. It just is, it's only as valuable as everyone decides that it's valuable on that, on that day. And, you know, with gold, gold specifically, I mean, there was a reason that we were on a gold standard for so long. The, the American economy was because they wanted to tie the currency to something physical so that there was actually a basis for its valuation. Um, and we went off the gold standard. And now at least though, you know, it is tied to the, the dollar is tied to the value, basically the value of the United States. I mean, it's literally, it's backed by the entire uh, economic power of uh, the, the world's foremost superpower. Whereas Bitcoin is just, uh, it's just an investment. It's just something that we've all decided has value. And we are all trading things, uh, not really things, just trading Bitcoins to each other um, as they go up and down in price. And it, it is just a stock. It's just, you know, it's, it's just an investment right now. It's just a way for people to try to put a bunch of money into something that they think is going to increase in value. But ultimately, it needs to be, it needs to be used uh, to, I think, to um, to level the playing field, right? That's the idea is that it's going, it, it, I could buy something from, you know, someone in Russia. And even though right now, obviously, it's very difficult for anyone in Russia to, uh, to interact with financially anyone outside of Russia because of sanctions and things. Um, with Bitcoin, they can get around that and they can, you know, they, they can make transactions and buy the things they need. And that's the idea is that you kind of take these governments out of the picture. And it could be really amazing at Venezuela. That was a big deal in Venezuela when the economy, the, the oil economy crashed, you know, the, their currency was worth nothing. But if they had Bitcoin, that was worth something internationally. And so they could order things from out of their country and still sustain themselves. And so it was a way of sort of getting around, um, borders and getting around uh, international monetary restrictions. And in that way, it, it can be very revolutionary. But most people, 99% of people are just using it as a place to put money. So because they think it's going to increase in value, and they're going to get rich. And, you know, that's, that's fine, if that's working for some people, but that's not ultimately what the potential of Bitcoin really is and, and crypto in general. Yeah, it's totally speculative. That's for sure. Absolutely. Completely. So there have been a couple episodes where I just made an executive decision and said, I'm doing an episode that I'm interested in right now. And QAnon may have been one of those. Um, I know that taxes was. We did one on taxes. And I am interested in, in finances and ec economics. And uh, uh, that one actually ended up being really fun. Duncan went into it thinking he was going to hate it. I don't tell him what the subject is going to be until the day of. And he was not thrilled when I said we were, I was just going to do one on taxes, uh, taxes worldwide. And, but it's interesting, you know, the, the, the origin of taxation and the idea of, you know, with back to the code of Hammurabi and, and, you know, uh, going back to how these laws were implemented, they had a beard tax in Russia for a long time, where if you wore a beard, you, you were taxed. Um, th there were a lot of interesting elements oh to it. Uh, this was uh, quite a long time ago, the, the era of the czars in Russia. And uh, okay. yeah, it was, you could actually, 
if you didn't have a, a coin, they would give a coin out that was basically proof that you had paid your beard tax. And if you didn't have one, they would <laughs> forcibly shave you. so there was a lot of it that was really interesting stuff that obviously you know you wouldn't think has to do with taxes um so i think i made that one interesting but that one was not chosen by the by the uh insomniacs that was something that i just made an executive decision and i do that occasionally i was really fascinated by QAnon at the time and still am i think you know we've done a few cult episodes and QAnon is is a cult but it's it's a cult that is really um you know, it's very mainstream now in a lot of ways. And I I have people that I've worked with um, who adhere to parts of the QAnon conspiracy, who, you know, believe that there is child sex trafficking in a pizza restaurant. And it, it just, it is really amazing to me that this is becoming as big as it is and that it is as clearly bonkers as we all know it is, but that, you know, but, but that it still has traction. And so that one uh, was that one was super interesting to do. And no, I don't think any of our uh, I don't think any of our listeners were are on board with QAnon, but I think that they do enjoy mocking nonsense. And that was a great opportunity to mock nonsense. I'm absolutely baffled by QAnon. And I've read I think maybe Bill Maher said something along the lines that 35 percent of the Republican Party believes in some form or variation of the premise, at least, of QAnon. And that is just mind-boggling to me. Don't you think? I think that's fucking nuts. That's what's amazing about it is that (laughs) partly it's a choose your own adventure. Like QAnon is not just one thing. You can, you can decide to believe the pizza gate thing. You can believe that there was a child sex trafficking ring in a pizza restaurant, or there are tons of people who believe in QAnon elements, but don't believe in, you know, the child sex trafficking and the adrenochrome and all of the sort of satanic element of it. But they believe that Donald Trump is fighting against the deep state and that, you know, there is a cabal of of government agents who are who are running the world and they you know the illuminati is involved qanon has a little bit of everything like whatever conspiracy you are inclined to believe you can find elements of it in qanon and that's why i think it's been so compelling for so many people is that it it, it, like i said it's a choose your own adventure you get to make qanon whatever you want it to be if you want to if you want to believe that you know that uh the Bilderberg group is running the the world you know you can find that within QAnon you can you can find your niche yeah it does feel like those books that you, as a kid you know choose uh, your own adventure for this chapter go choose that page it's a smodge podge of like just wacky ass shit and what who is Q like what what did you come up with or how did you, uh, what was your ultimate conclusion thus far? Yeah. So there is a guy uh, who, well, I, as far as we can tell, and did you, I don't know if you watched, I have to say after we did our QAnon episode and we came to the same conclusion as there's a great HBO show called, I think it's, is it Into the Storm? The Yeah. Yes, I did watch it. The four part. Yeah. Yeah. 
I saw and I it. think they did a great job. And I, I 100% agree with them. I think that at this point, you know, obviously Q is inactive now, but I think that once QAnon, once uh, Q switched over in quotes, switched over to 8chan, uh, that it was Ron Watkins and Jim Watkins that took over as Q. Uh, and I think Ron Watkins was the primary, uh, he was the, the force behind Q drops for the last year or so of Q, but I think it start you know, it started on 4chan and it was with, uh, some, some other guys, this guy called Baruch the scribe. And it just, you know, there, there's so much that goes into it. It was a ridiculous little joke at first on, on 4chan and it became this worldwide phenomenon. Uh, but yeah, Ron Watkins and Jim Watkins, actually Jim Watkins is a pig farmer who lived in the Phil- <laughs> in the Philippines. He's an American, but he was living in the Philippines <laughs> And his son, who is just a complete garbage bag of a human, uh, is he's just a troll. He's such and a creep, man. He's, he's such a creep. Such a creep. <laughs> <laughs> he is just an absolute. He's a troll. He's a professional troll. And I don't think he takes any of it seriously. I don't think he ever did. I don't think he believes in this at all. He's he's mocking the people that believe in this constantly. Um, you know, for him, it's all very tongue in cheek, and it, it's all for the it's all for the lulls for him. You know, he's he's very much kind of a millennial into the whole idea of, of trolling the world. And he got to do that. What? So, you know, speaking of QAnon and what I just talked about the Republican party, what are your thoughts on the polarization currently of the country? It's tough. I don't know how we, how we fix this. Um, I will say that it is amazing to talk to people outside of my my bubble because I live in in a very liberal area. Uh, I grew up in San Francisco and I live in, you know, right next to UC Santa Cruz, which is one of the most liberal colleges in America. And so this is a bubble. We are all I, you know, this is a very, very homogenous area. There's not a lot of dissent, but I have family and I have people out, you know, and, and my wife has family and people outside of this state. And I actually did a briefly was a guest on a podcast uh, for a while. It was a podcast um, that was it was about the political divide. And I was the kind of the liberal voice and the other guy was the conservative voice. And we would talk about issues. And that was really interesting because he is an incredibly smart, incredibly nice, very articulate, very well. He's he's very well educated he knows he knows his facts he knows where he's coming from and he's able to uh, lay out a, a very convincing argument and i think i think that i am to some extent like that on the left and so we had very good discussions i feel like they were productive i feel like i learned a lot from him and i also it was nice to get a sense of someone on the other side of the aisle who i didn't have a preconceived notion of, and we, we weren't vilifying each other. And I think it helped that he was not, he wasn't extreme. He was not a QAnon guy. You know, he was a very rational conservative. And I can respect that. I respect that there are just differences in politics, but it has become so emotional and it's become so tied to identity and that it's, it's really hard now to find common ground or to find at least opportunities to have common ground without starting from a position of without really, I guess without that acrimony, you know, it's so easy to go into any interaction with someone from the opposite side and, and have your defenses up. 
And it's really hard to get past that. And so that was nice. I, I think that if we could do more of that, if people could take some of the emotion out of the politics and just talk about the, the nuts and bolts of policy, which is really where the arguments are. A lot of this is just on, you know, do we think that there should be a more of a social safety net? Do we think that our money should be going to the military or do we think it should be going to social services? These are just nuts and bolts issues, but they become so charged emotionally that we can't really separate our, our sense of identity and our sense of self and what we stand for as humans is all wrapped up in these policies when really it's it's just a matter of like, it's okay to disagree about some of that stuff. You know, it's okay to say like, well, I have a different uh, perspective on how we should write these this legislation, you know, it, because ultimately it is all just, it, it is all just words on a page, you know, but it, I, I don't know. I don't have, a, I don't have an answer, I guess. I don't have a, I don't have a cure all, but uh, I would like to see us be less, emotionally invested in our politics i've just never in my i'm 42 i've never seen culturally and throughout society uh here in the u.s and really in the world how siloed we are i don't know it's just like i've read something also that a large something around the same percentage of of people think that we're that we might be facing another civil war and crazy shit like that. <laughs> it's just uh, because of, of the difference and how we're all in our own bubbles and, and we just don't want to cross the aisle, as they say, if we have different political beliefs, it's baffling to me. I agree. Although it's interesting from a, you know, to take the devil's advocate point of view, or at least maybe let's look at a silver lining. We talk about how polarized we are, but you just brought up the Civil War. I mean, there are times in this country where we were more polarized than we are today. I mean, that was certainly a time when the country was literally fighting against each other. And, you know, and also we surprisingly, I think there is agreement on so many more issues than there used to be. I think that it is in some ways it's a very man, it's a very manufactured polarization because we as a I think we as Americans and maybe as a world culture agree on more things than I think we ever have. You know, it, my wife is black and um, being in an interracial relationship, you know, this is we're only a few a, a generation removed from where she and I could not legally be married. And, you know, the idea that just 50, 60, 70 years ago, people couldn't even agree on whether it was okay to marry someone of a different race. Like we have all these arguments now with the other side, but I've never met a Republican who doesn't think it's okay that I'm married to my wife. Like not one. And I'm sure there's, you know, some neo-Nazi out there in, in the boondocks who probably would say that. But for the most part, all these people that I disagree with on so many levels, we still, you know, most of them, are okay with gay marriage. Most most Republicans I know are like, ah, that's that issue settled. Who cares? I don't care what two gay people do. You know, we're at the point where I think we agree on more things than we we disagree on. We just vehemently disagree on very small things for the most part. Um, and then there are some wedge issues like abortion and things that that really divide people and are so emotionally charged that it's hard to to find a common ground. But overall, even the people who are yelling at each other on opposite sides of, of, a, of a picket line or whatever, you know, a riot, um, 
over abortion or over, you know, what, whatever the, the issue is, if you asked them, if you polled them about their basic beliefs, do you think it's okay to be gay? Do you think it's okay to marry a person of the opposite race? Do you think that we should have separate water, fa- water fountains for different people? Everyone pretty much agrees now on a lot of the same stuff. So we have come together more than I think at any other point in this country's history. This country has a really, really, I guess almost every country does, but we have a very polarized, very divisive history, especially when it comes to race and sexuality and, and religion. And, and right now is one of the times in history where we kind of all have the same basic principles. And now we're just fighting over smaller stuff, but we, we blow it up into much bigger seeming seemingly bigger arguments because it's all magnified by the internet and it's all you know everyone has a bullhorn now you have your own you have your twitter and you have your facebook and you've got your bullhorn and you're going to go out there and yell about your opinions and the fact is you probably agree with 90 percent of what the other people are yelling you know the the other, the other people who are yelling you probably agree on 90 percent of the issues but you're going to use your bullhorns to yell about the the one thing that you guys can't agree on and that's going to become the defining characteristic of that other person to you. And, you know, I, I think it's a lot of it's not real. A lot of it's just manufactured. Well, I mean, the abortion topic, that's uh, that's going to be an interesting one. I think it's kind of disturbing what's going on in my state where I live, Texas, that women are literally they may lose the right to the choice of their own body. And that's disturbing to me, you know? I mean, I know I have to assume you feel the same way based off of speaking with you for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I am solidly pro-choice and uh, it is scary. I mean, I think that we have the biggest, the biggest fear I have right now, or I think the biggest threat to my values is, is the Supreme court and the fact that we have a very conservative majority on the Supreme court that is going to undo a lot of, you know, there we recently had a, a senator who questioned whether states should be able to uh, outlaw interracial marriage. He wasn't saying that he thought they should outlaw interracial marriage, but he was saying they should have the right to do that. And a lot of this comes down to to people arguing about states' rights. It is important to note, I think, that if Roe versus Wade is quote unquote overturned by the Supreme Court, that doesn't mean that. Uh, abortion becomes illegal. Uh, it becomes potentially illegal in certain states. Um, but we're also in a situation where I think the internet is going to really break this this whole issue apart because right now you can order pills online. You can take a, a, a pill that it's basically, it's basically an abortion pill. Um, and it's going to be very hard for Texas or any other state to stop the ability to order from like Denmark, one of these pills and have it shipped over. And, you know, they'll, they'll be able to seize some of them. But for the most part, if a woman wants an abortion now, she is able to get one in a fairly safe way just by going online and ordering a pill. And I don't think, I think this is something that I think that these state legislatures are fighting a losing battle. And so I'm, I'm still a little bit more optimistic about this. I don't think that Texas and and Arkansas and, you know, all of these states that really want to restrict women's autonomy, physical autonomy are going to be able to do that. I think that ultimately this is a, this is a war that they're going to lose. So, but it it is scary. It's scary that they're trying to. Um, It is interesting though, when you poll people on abortion, 
you know, there is more agreement. A lot of people, for instance, would say that they are not pro-abortion, but they would say that in the case of rape or incest, that they think it's okay. They would say, you know, before a certain amount of time, a lot of people are are against late-term abortion, but are okay with a woman, you know, taking a morning-after pill or taking the the pill within the first couple, you know, the first trimester or something. So, again, once you kind of parse these issues, you find out that a lot that there's very few people who 100% believe that no, well, I wouldn't say very few, but there's a quite a bit fewer than I think we believe who actually just believe that abortion should be illegal in all cases. It's a more nuanced issue when you poll when you poll actual Americans, even in conservative states. So we'll see, you know, again, I think this is something that we are all up in arms about because because it does have real world world consequences, but also because it is really the narrative that is pushed online and in the media that we have this huge divide. And I don't think that the divide is as unconquerable and as as wide as we're led to believe. Just my opinion. I want to be optimistic, but then I see things that are going on, at least with the governor of Texas and, and some of the things that Abbott has tried to do. I mean, have you read about what's going on with parents of children who are transgender trans? Yeah. 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 It's interesting. That's another interesting issue. It's also another one where I think that there might be more kind of agreement if people sat down and talked about it. I think that it has, it's very similar to the issue with homosexuality when I was growing up, obviously, you know, gay marriage was illegal. And I think that I didn't, you know, I remember not, I grew up in San Francisco where you would think that I would be a lot more progressive as, as a kid. But I think as a teenager, I was very, you know, it's kind of trying to be macho. And I think I was threatened by the fact that I lived in a city where that was associated with homosexuality. And I think I had some internalized homophobia. Um, and it took really, meeting gay people. It was when I got to college, I, I'm, I, oh, and, and in high school, actually, I had a girlfriend whose best friend was gay. And um, once I started spending time with gay people and, and you actually learn about the community and about gay issues and gay rights and you, uh, and you start to view these, you know, someone who's not, who, who you considered to be different from you and realize that they're not different from you at all. They just are, you know, have a different sexual proclivity like who cares it i think that that is part of what's happening with the trans community right now is that this is sort of the next frontier of sexual acceptance that a lot of people just haven't had experience with trans people one of one of my good comedian friends just went through a a gender reassignment and you know i before that hadn't had a lot of experience meeting trans people i always sort of supported the idea of of being able to choose your 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 sexuality or not being able to choose it but being able to you know express the sexuality that you feel you were born with um and but i hadn't had personal experience with it and now that i have a friend who's who's trans you know that is really opening my eyes to to the issue in a lot of ways that that they weren't open before and making me certainly more sensitive to it i think i was always trying to be sensitive to it but now it's less of an effort to be sensitive to it and more like oh of course i would be sensitive to it you know how would i want this friend of mine to you know how would i want them to feel if i said you know if i if i misgendered them or um use the wrong pronouns on purpose or something so it 
I think that as this issue becomes more mainstream and as more people, more trans people are comfortable with coming out and, and expressing themselves as their true selves. And as this becomes part of the American fabric, it will be like homosexuality in that I think it becomes mainstream. I think that right now we're just in that, we're just in that, that rough patch like we were with, with gay marriage, where you just have all these people who a lot of it has to do with religion who just say, you know, okay, nope, that's a line in the sand. But that line in the sand is going to move as more, more and more trans people come out and become, you know, it becomes mainstream and we have more trans art and more trans cinema and more trans, you know, as people are exposed to it more, those walls are going to break down. And so I think that, again, I'm, it's funny to, for me to always be taking the optimistic side of it because I can, I can tend to be really cynical, but I do feel optimistic about the direction that, that we're heading with, uh, with inclusivity in this country. And so, but that is scary. You know, I think that it's, it's a, it's a, it's a knee jerk reaction that we're seeing from really conservative states. And I think that over time that's going to erode, but there certainly are issues that, that need to be addressed. You know, I think it is fair to talk about at what age should hormone, uh, you know, hormone replacement even be an option for, you know, is that, should it be an option for a, a seven-year-old? You know, that that's a fair question to have and that's a fair debate to hold and so this can't I be agree. A, yeah. you know it can't be a third rail issue where no one's willing to talk about it and, and that is something that on the left we have to be careful of is like well anyone who says you know that uh, who questions aspects of of this issue must be anti-trans or something or transphobic and that's not necessarily the case i mean like i said there are certain issues it, the gender and you know trans athletes that that's another issue that's a really kind of a hot button now and i think there are some valid questions to be answered there and there are some valid debates to be had and we 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 on the left we have to allow those debates to occur i think if we shut them down and just say if you want to talk about this you are transphobic that's not helpful and so i think there is some pushback partly to that mentality as well and we have to be careful about that on the left but uh but i think that over time this is going to work itself out because I think that it's very hard to deny someone else's humanity for very long. Once, once you kind of get to know them and once people, once there are more trans, more visible trans people who become, you know, part of the, the discourse who become part of, uh, pop culture. And, and, you know, we will, we will just start to accept them more, or at least America will. And, and I'm really, I am optimistic about that. I, you know, I, I see a lot of hope for it. Yeah, I agree with you. And as you just pointed out, it's exposure, because if you don't have any firsthand experience, the, the only opinion that you may have, or it's being altered, or it's by your community, or whichever, if you're watching Fox, or CNN, or whatever, or even Facebook, the social media, all that stuff that's just thrown in your face. If we could just go back to the human level and and, and just be open-minded, then I, I, I agree. There's going to be a lot of push back and forth and friction. But ultimately, I hope that that's, you're right, that that's the case for sure. I think it will. And I, I think it's just like, again, just like with, with gay people. I mean, there was, it's when you start to be exposed to 
to diversity and, and people outside of your, your bubble, uh, you realize how many similarities you have. And it's so funny to me, like with my friend who is, who is trans, uh, who's FC Sierra, by the way, is a, a plug for, uh, for, uh, I, I think I believe that FC is going by she her now, although possibly they they them pronouns. So I'll say they, but um, they are an amazing comedian and someone who it, it's so interesting to me because FC was someone that I considered to be uh, very. You know, we have these these concepts in our heads of what masculinity is and what femininity is, and if you had asked me to define FC Sierra pre-transition and pre my knowledge of their sexuality i would have said fc is like one of the more kind of aggressive like manly you know quote unquote manly comics out there and it was really interesting to me because that was you know the idea that you that someone who is trans had to be effeminate ahead of time or had to be there you know that you would know that that person was struggling with their sexuality or had, you know, didn't feel connected to their current gender expression. You know, we, we sort of have this thing in our head that we're like, Oh, we would be able to tell or something, or like they would seem effeminate or it. And it just, as much as I tried to get rid of that in my head, I think that was still there. It was still this idea that I would be able to tell if someone was trans, like not that I would, care but that i would you know that they would act a certain way and it was it was so cool to see someone completely counter to my preconceptions to someone who completely challenged preconceptions i didn't even know i had like when fc sierra when they said that they were trans i remember in my head thinking that's the last person i would have thought would be trans and that's such a weird thought to have because i didn't know that i had those judgments i didn't know that i had those preconceptions and those you know i didn't know that i was someone who would assume that a person who i consider to be very masculine couldn't be trans and so it was interesting it was a good chance for me to sort of look at my own uh my own in some ways you know stereotypes and and my own prejudices even in my head that I, that I wasn't aware were there. And so that I think is something that is going to happen to more and more people as, as more and more people are comfortable coming out as trans more and more people who maybe didn't understand transsexuality and didn't had had no sympathy for it will be shocked into realizing that they have to re reevaluate all of their preconceptions. And that's, that's how this works. And so the more people who are comfortable coming out, the more people are going to find that they now have to uh, have to reevaluate their own their own attitudes and and beliefs. Yeah, I agree with you. It's it's sort of this is a new frontier uh, in a sense where and I mean, you just gave a personal anecdote for yourself. A lot of people are not exposed, so it's. That's why it's very hard or people are having such visceral reactions maybe when they shouldn't because they've not been personally exposed to this subject exactly. and, and the actual experience for what a person may be going through and why they choose to do so. At this point, it's just uh, I'm ready for 
a year with no um no drama no pandemics no wars that'd be that'd be nice yeah well can you tell me where that utopia is (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) i mean i feel like i god i feel like i feel like there have been years that were very uneventful I just want an uneventful year. You know, what is that curse? Is it, the, is it a Chinese curse where they say, you know, may you live in interesting times? Um, I just want to live in uninteresting times for a while. <laughs> yeah. Back to your podcast, Midnight Facts for Insomniacs. Do you suffer from insomnia? I have gone through bouts of insomnia. We did an episode in, on insomnia, actually. And um, I learned that I, I probably from a clinical definition, I don't suffer from insomnia now. I do have, uh, I do suffer from lack of sleep and that's just because I, t- I'm a night owl. I like to stay up late. And so, um, I, during COVID was a great example. I, by the end of the quarantine period for, for me, I was going to bed at probably six in the morning and sleeping most of the day. And that's just my natural circadian rhythm. That's kind of what I get into. And, uh, if I'm left to my own devices, I will be, I will be nocturnal. So that's where the insomnia thing comes from. But I can sleep if I if I need to sleep. I just don't want to. I never want to go to sleep. I always want to stay up a little bit later working on a podcast or doing some research or playing a video game or whatever I'm doing. I don't want to go to sleep. So our insomniacs, for the most part, it's funny because so many people have found us through you know, putting in insomnia in uh, in Apple podcasts or something. And finding a podcast that has nothing to do. That's actually why we ended up doing an insomnia episode, just so we could actually give some information to people who were who found us accidentally and were looking for something we weren't providing. Um, and we found a, a lot of our fans came to us that way. So we do have a lot of people who are actual insomniacs who are fans of the show. Um, but I myself am, am not an insomniac per se. I'm just I'm just a night owl. And I think Duncan's the same. But in college, I, I did go through stretches of really bad insomnia um, where I could not get to sleep. And I would go to class, you know, on, on a couple hours sleep and be nodding off all day and then come home and crash for a couple hours. And then because I'd taken a nap, I couldn't sleep at all that night. And it was a, it's a vicious cycle. So I have a lot of sympathy for people who are truly suffering from insomnia. Yeah, no, I'm a night owl and it comes and goes. But if you're a night owl, it's the benefit is, and I'm sure you can relate to this, creativity. When the when the world is a, mm-hmm. a little more quiet, you can come up and and do research for your next podcast or write jokes and so forth. And so that's the one benefit. But then, yeah. of course, I had the same th- same problem when COVID was really bad. I had the same issue where I was looking at the clock and saying, holy shit, it's like 5 (laughs) a.m. at the blink of an eye. But sleep does matter, and it it certainly affects your mental health. It does. Yeah, and I I think I do pretty well on a minimal amount of sleep, but I'll hit a wall. There's a point at which I'm just like, okay, I got to get some sleep. I've cut out all caffeine, so that's another thing I did. Like, no caffeine, uh, trying to be smart about like not being on my phone for, you know, the last half hour before I go to bed. I've got a lot of little tricks that I, that I'm using to make sure that I get at least six hours or five hours a night. But, uh, yeah, eight hours would be like a once in a, once a year kind of thing. (laughs) What do you normally get? Four or five? I probably, I probably average around six. So it's not, it's not terrible. 
and you know, I'm not a, I'm not a kid anymore. I'm, I'm getting up to in my forties now. So I, I think six hours is probably enough. I think as you get older, you need less sleep. When you first launched the podcast, you said it was just mostly from your comedy community. How have you grown your audience? The best advertising you can ever get is word of mouth and people telling their friends. And, you know, it's kind of a cliche, but that's where it came from. I mean, when we started, we were not taking this seriously at all. We were we recorded our first episodes in my car. I would go pick up Duncan and uh, he would always be he was super drunk in those first episodes. I mean, you can hear it like you go back and listen to some (laughs) of our earlier episodes and we were just screwing around. You know, he was just he was wasted and we were just having talk and uh, in a car in parked in in the woods somewhere just where we could get quiet in the beginning it started a little before covid but that was just for fun and then and then during covid we kind of used it as a lifeline because there was nothing else going on um but we had a very small fan base in the beginning and then as it started to pick up and we started to get more and more emails and messages and and you know instagram started to kind of pick up and and uh we just realized like, wow, there are people listening to this. We need to take this more seriously. And that's what kind of made us uh, focus on it more was feeling a sense of obligation to the people that were listening because, you know, Duncan would come in and be super drunk for an episode and we would laugh about it. And then I'd listen back and be like, oh my God, I can't believe, you know, thousands of people are listening to this. Like when I was looking at the, you know, when I'm, as I'm looking at the, at the stats start to go up and, you know, once we hit like a thousand downloads in a day and I'm just like, we've got a thousand people listening to Duncan drunkenly ramble and me make fun of him, you know? And, and I was like, this is, we, we've got to take this more seriously. I just feel like we have to, we've got to, if these people are going to tune in, I want to give them something that I'm proud of, not something that is just a kind of a joke to us. Once we got serious about it and we started putting out episodes that we were proud of and that I was, you know, I was starting to really do some research for this stuff and 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 we were figuring out our dynamic and figuring out, you know, that we needed we needed to both be sober for the episodes. Um, once we had a, a body of work, I'd say after the first like 20 or so episodes, we realized, okay, this is this is going somewhere. It was starting to pick up a little bit of momentum on its own. People were telling their friends and giving, sending us a lot of messages and sending us a lot of topic suggestions. And then we got serious about asking them to spread the word. And uh, we have now, so there's one of the fans runs our Instagram. One of the fans runs our discord and started a discord for us. So I I was never going to do a discord. I'd never been on discord and you know, I'd heard of it, but I wasn't involved. And then all of a sudden there's a discord out there and I get an invitation to join our own discord. And I was like, what is this? And I go there and there's people in there talking about our show. And it had been started by one of the fans and she still runs our discord at June and uh, Lydia runs our Instagram. And so, you know, once your fans start taking over the publicity side of things, uh, then it's, that's when, you know, you have something worthwhile and something also that can, can really catch because if you're just out there trying to, you know, get all your friends and family to listen and everyone at a comedy show and, you know, just kind of, you can only do so much. I can only reach so many people, but when each of your fans has, you know, a a social media presence and and their fans and family and friends, and they start evangelizing for your show, that's when you start to really pick up, pick up speed and, and steam. And so that's kind of how it happened. And, and, you know, we've been really lucky in that way. And now we're, we're, doing very well. We're, we're at a spot that I did not expect 
that we would ever get to. With the podcast, you know, literally every day I'm interacting with people who are fans of the podcast. So, so it's been very rewarding. It's, it's really fun and we're super lucky. For my listeners, how can you find your Discord? Our Discord is MFFI. Um, and you can find it through our Instagram. I think there's a link from Instagram, uh, or if you listen to the show in the show notes, there's always a link to the discord. Um, and yeah, midnight facts for insomniacs. It's on every podcast player and, uh, all the show notes have the discord, the Instagram and, and all the, uh, contact info. My podcast has been growing quickly and exponentially, but I'm sort of at the threshold. But one thing where I, I am trying, what I am doing is to my listeners is giving them a call to action because I want them to, and I just started doing this a couple episodes ago to tell me what topics they want to hear from me and which guests, because I, I want it to be a community and an interactive forum because that's where I get the most fulfillment. But I also, the premise of mine is some mental health, humor, things that I'm passionate about, music, plant medicine, gotten into politics. I didn't think we'd go dark a little bit, but that being said, you know, things that I'm passionate about. Also, I want to sort of build a community where like a biosphere where we're all interacting and I'm giving back to my listeners so they get to hear what they, they want to hear and, and not feel where they just were like, all right, whatever, that's but it, it, it's a, like you said, it's a slippery slope where you, you have to talk about something that you have interest in and, and passionate about. So it's, it can be tough. So I, I totally understand why you did <laughs> put the uh, children murderers on, on the shelf. I, I don't <laughs> think I could have had the stomach nor heart to do something like yeah. that. Yeah. But I love the fact that that you're doing that and each how much time are you spending researching on each for each episode? Oh, it is. A, it's a lot. And it, it depends on the episodes. I mean, I, we we've been lucky in that some of the topics that they've chosen, I, I tend to be very I'm a guy who would like read the encyclopedia when I was younger. Like I've just always been a sponge for facts and knowledge. And that's just I, I don't know why I you know, I'm I'm not even that great at, at trivia. Like my people were always telling me I should go on Jeopardy or something, but it, it, I don't have that passion for like just learning individual facts, but I really like to understand uh, something like Bitcoin. You know, when we talked about crypto, that was something I didn't know a lot about. And it was really fun for me to take a deep dive and learn every aspect of it. Um, and now, you know, I'm not a crypto expert, but I, I can speak with pretty good authority on the subject just because I, I did a really deep dive into it. So it depends on the subject. Some of them um, are things that I already knew quite a lot about. And so a lot of it was me kind of doing some additional research. We did, for instance, an episode fairly recently on Scientology. And I have read a bunch of books on Scientology and watch a bunch of uh, a bunch of um, documentaries. <laughs> And so there wasn't, you know, it was really just compiling kind of the knowledge I had and going back and referencing a lot of books that I had read in the past and, you know, pulling some quotes and, and checking my facts. And, uh, you know, then I, I put it all in a, a big document and I always, I, I have my sources too. There's all links to my sources for each of the episodes. Um, but that was, that was one that I didn't have to do a lot of research. I only had to really do sort of, um, like a little reminder, you know, I, I went through kind of 
I wrote it all out and then I went back and double checked all of my facts and added a bunch of stuff. Doing comedy for a year and a half has made this podcast much more manageable. I've been able to put all the energy that I used to put into doing stand-up comedy into doing this show. So instead of going driving to San Francisco to do the punchline, uh, you know, I take those few hours and do research that night. And so I've put as much energy into the podcast as I used to put into stand-up. And that's going to be an issue when I go back to doing shows. So I'm not sure how that's going to all work out, but I'm not going to give up the podcast. Um, so we'll see. It may just be something where comedy has to be, you know, worked in around the episodes and it's going to be, uh, I'm going to be a busy guy. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. What, stylistically, real quick, what would you say your comedy's like? Uh, how would you compare it to other comedians? Well, that's a good question. Uh yeah, I mean, I'd say I'm pretty, I'd say I'm pretty like standard observational white guy comic, uh, cis, cis white guy comic. Um, I try to be, you know, not a, not a douche and uh, do as, as little kind of cliched cis white guy comedy as I can. But I am, uh, I, I can't change what I am. And it's a lot of stuff about, you know, my life. And, and I have some stuff that obviously changes over time as I've gone from being a single guy to being a married guy. And I have a lot of stuff about being married and living with my wife. And, uh, you know, I used to, I used to do some about being in an interracial relationship, which that was interesting. Um, but it, it's hard. There is, there are certain topics that are much, that are getting harder to talk about too, as we go forward. And that's been interesting. Um, when, when Jody and I started dating, uh, I did a lot of material about being in an interracial relationship. And it was, that was really interesting stuff for me to talk about and have fun with. And it's been, it's become harder and harder to talk about that. Um, you know, we've been together almost eight years. So the majority of my comedy career and in the beginning, eight years ago, people were more receptive to talking about that stuff. Um, obviously I think I was pretty sensitive about how I would talk about it. Cause you know, I'm, I'm sensitive to race relations. I'm in, I'm in an interracial relationship and I have to be, um, but it's interesting now, I feel like it's harder for me to even bring, if I bring up the fact that my wife is black, immediately people tighten up. There's this, oh God, this white guy's going to talk about race. And it's, it's interesting to see people automatically not be receptive to, you know, usually once the material starts going, they start laughing and they kind of relax a little bit, but it is really interesting. You know, it, it, this is a, I'm I'm certainly not one of those anti PC warriors or something, the, you know, guys who's out there like people are, need to chill out and, you know, we should all be able to joke about race and sexuality or something. I, I think there are absolutely things that are off limits for, for a guy like me and that's totally fine, but it is interesting. It, it has changed a little bit of what I feel like I'm able to discuss on stage and I've had to adapt um, over time. So with your relationship with your wife, Bill Burr is obviously... Yeah, he's married to a black woman. Yeah. Yeah. So at what point was that helpful to you to see him? Because he's very vocal about it. And and I mean, some of his specials, some of his jokes are hilarious when he talks about that and, and the correlation between the difference <laughs> differences in, in dating, perhaps a, a white girl and a, and a black girl. Um was was that inspirational or did what, like what's your take on his style? Yeah, I don't know if it's inspirational, but I, I do appreciate it. I think he's really funny. Jody loves he has a whole bit about um, 
his wife pointing out that he was very ashy and he didn't understand, you know, the idea of like <laughs> yes, moisturizing. Yes, the lotion. The lotion yeah, and the like lo lotion. him scratching his arm and like a puff of, you know, dust came up. <laughs> And Jody thought that was hilarious. And it really, it struck a chord with me because that was something early in our relationship that she had like started forcing me to use body lotion. And I, I didn't know that that was a necessarily a race thing. I thought that was more of a, just her thing. You know, she was, she, she was into moisturizing and she kept telling me I wasn't moisturizing enough. And so, so it was funny when I heard that joke, we just kind of looked at each other and she just started rolling. Um, and so it, it is, I see a lot of, parallels to my own relationship in that. And it's always fun to see yourself reflected in comedy, you know, to see you, especially if you have a unique situation. And so I really have enjoyed watching Bill Burr talk about that. Um, it is interesting, though, because Bill Burr is in a situation where he is very privileged as a, as a comic and he's earned the right to be. He's he's an incredible comedian and, and he's earned his success. But once you have that level of success, you have much more leeway to talk about things. And it's it's a lot harder for a comic to go to, you know, if, if they don't already know who I am and I show up and start talking about race, uh, that's going to be there. People are, are less receptive. If, if, if I'm famous and I walk in, they already know they like you. They're giving you the benefit of the doubt. You have more leeway. And so that's been interesting, you know, to, to see Bill Burr be able to talk about that kind of stuff and, and, and have that be okay. And also feel like I'm a little bit constrained at my level by, you know, just the way that, that the national discourse is now. So it, things change over time um, in some, mostly in good ways. And then sometimes again, you do feel a little constrained because um, again, it's a little weird that I feel like I can't really talk about my wife and I, but I think I just have to find the right way to, to approach it. And so partly that's on me to find a, a really sensitive way to talk about it. Um, but it is it is interesting. It's an interesting time to do comedy. When do you think you'll get back on the road, man? Uh, I hope pretty soon. Um, you know, it, it's just going to be a matter of writing. And so I, I've got a bunch of material now. I actually have a, have a bunch of stuff that I've worked on. That's all uh, I I know it's pretty rough. I'm able to read my own you know stuff back and go like, OK, this <laughs> this is going to need a little bit of work. And I just, but I need to get on stage and do it. So I'm going to be starting at, uh, we have, we're bringing back a couple really f like locally famous little open mics in Santa Cruz. There is this place called, Ro you know, Rosie McCann's has this big venue area in the back that was just a place where I used to try out all kinds of jokes. It was just such a great little kind of a rough room, but if it worked there, it was going to work anywhere. And that poet and the Patriot, unfortunately is gone but there's a couple other little open mics and then there's a, a couple shows um, that I can jump on locally that uh, DNA who runs comedy in Santa Cruz. Um, he, he's been kind of pushing me to get back out there. So he's got some shows that I can hop on. So I'm going to start at the little, the little open mics that are coming back in the next week or two. I'm going to, I'm going to go do some, some sets and then start workshopping stuff at uh, local shows and see how it goes. Who do you run your joke spot? Duncan, I have to assume, or. A lot of times I will. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because Duncan will also know if I'm, he can tell if I'm sneakily testing a bit because one of the things <laughs> that comedians will do is I'll start telling him a story about something that happened recently. And then I'll kind of slip into, he can tell I kind of slip into comedian mode where I'm, I'm kind of looking at him sideways to see if he laughs at little bits. And he's like, I just, just tell me the bit instead of trying to sneak it on me. 
you know, so I'll say, okay, okay, here's what I'm thinking of doing. So yeah, he's, he's been really helpful because he's a good, he's a good gauge. He's a good sort of every man gauge of like, if he thinks it's funny, there's a good chance that people are going to think it's funny. Uh, my wife is not as useful. <laughs> I think she, um, she has really specific <laughs> ideas of what she thinks is funny. And sometimes it doesn't, she loves dad jokes. She loves puns. She has the most ridiculous sense of humor. And so we ironically, like we can watch shows and find the same things funny, but we also, but when it comes to comedians, we, we, a lot of times have really different ideas of what's funny. So, um, luckily she finds, she finds me funny enough to tolerate, uh, but she, she's just not a good, <laughs> not a good gauge for my material. But Duncan is Duncan is. And then there's really there's just no substitute for just going in front of a, a, a crowd. And that the the hardest thing about comedy and there's so many people trying to take shortcuts. And that's you know, that's why we take comedy classes and and do, you know, Zoom shows and things when you're starting out. And and there is just no substitute. You have to eventually get up in front of a group of people and say the stuff and see if they laugh. And sometimes they won't. You know, all of us are going to bomb. It is really that is just the reality of it. It's a painful, painful process in the beginning with a new bit, especially if you're really invested in it. You write something and you think it's so funny and poignant and it's got a good point to it. And this is going to be the bit that's going to go viral or something. And then you go in front of a group of people and they just don't get it or they just don't think it's funny. They're just like, yeah, I see where you're going with that, but that's not. Mm -mm. You can see it in their faces and you know you can obviously hear it in their lack of laughs. <laughs> but uh you do you you get that immediate feedback and it's very visceral and it can hurt <laughs> but uh but as a comedian you know the more you do this the the less personally you take it you just get up there and go oh okay that one didn't work maybe i can workshop it i can figure out another way to say it and sometimes you know you get comfortable enough you will get to the point where you just say like I've asked people in the crowd, like, oh, you didn't like that one? What, what if I said it like this? And I'll just like change it. And they'll be like, yeah, that, that, that'd be better. And I'm like, okay, cool. And I'll, you know, make a note and go next time. So once you get comfortable enough, you don't even care uh, that it didn't work. You're just like, ah, all right, next, on to the next. And bombing is the best thing that can happen to you in the beginning. It is. It is. It is. It's the best thing. And we were, I told you I would tell you about my first time. And what was interesting, I... I did really well my first three sets and that was the worst thing that could have happened to me because I just didn't, I did not have a sense of what comedy was. I, I, I thought it was easy from the beginning. And then I learned a lesson. My, my first time, actually, my favorite part of that was that the guy who went up before me completely froze. He had a, he had a panic attack on stage. It was a bunch of people doing their first sets and it was a very friendly room. Yeah. It was at the Purple Onion in San Francisco, but it was a lot of people had sort of brought their friends and family and it was a big, you know, it was kind of a bringer show. And uh, the guy who went up before me, brand new comic, he went up and he picked up the mic and he stared out at the crowd and he froze and it just his with his mouth open and just stood there and you could hear like people coughing, clearing their throat, chairs creaking. <laughs> you know, the door kind of open and close someone like you could hear the toilet flush because the, in the, uh, in the purple onion, the bathroom was right there behind, you know, across from the stage. And it was just painful. It just dragged on. And eventually Aurora, I remember who the host was that night. She went up and just led him off stage physically, just took the microphone, put it back down, <laughs> led him off stage to his table. She came back 
and she picked up the mic and she said, well, comedy is hard, folks. Comedy is hard. And then she said, and next up, Shane Rogers. <laughs> and I was so terrified <laughs> watching this guy just freeze. But I remember it also helped me because I, I did think, well, as long as I say one word, I've already done better than that guy. So like, I can't, this can't go worse than what just happened. And I felt horrible for him, but I also felt like, okay, that's, that's, that's the bottom. <laughs> like I can do better than that. And so I went up and told some jokes and it went well. And my next couple sets went well. And so at that point I just thought I was great. I thought, you know, net next, next stop Netflix. And, uh, and then I went to a show and I, did this rookie thing that a lot of comics do where I, I got really cocky and I kind of made fun of the audience. I, I went up and I said something like, how's everybody doing tonight? And they say, you know, uh, you know, are you guys, are, are we feeling good or something? And they all clapped. And then I said like, ah, no one cares. And just kind of like <laughs> thought that that would be, you know, I, I thought I could sort of get away with whatever I wanted on stage. And they went silent just like that. And they hated me. I mean, it was, and I think at that point I'd thought that I had a lot of material. So I think I was doing 10 minutes, which for a brand new comic is a lot for your first, you know, couple sets. That's what people don't realize. There's like levels, right? Yeah. Open mics, usually three to five, then you get to five to seven. And then 10 to 15 is what you need to be like an opener. You can open, you can be a host at yep. shows with like 10 to 15 minutes. So that's your kind of goal in the beginning is like get that 10 to 15 minute set. So, and I thought I had 10 minutes after three, you know, and I'm, I had maybe four, <laughs> four minutes of decent, semi-decent comedy and then six minutes of just, you know, nonsense that actually was really like maybe three, but I thought that people would be laughing so much that it would, it would <laughs> stretch to, to six. And so when they stopped laughing and they just hated me, I, I didn't even have enough material to finish that set. And I just talked to a you know, a silent room for luckily they didn't heckle me, but they just sat there silently with their arms folded. And I, you know, I didn't even have 10 full minutes. So I just, my, your material goes really fast when no one's laughing. And uh, I got through like five minutes and then I just had to bail. I was just like, okay, I, I got to go. I have to go. Where's the host? And the host ran up from the back. And so that was a, that was a reality check. It was a slap in the face. I have been heckled a couple times. Um, the, not I've been super lucky with hecklers and I think I'm, I don't know why I don't know why but I it doesn't seem like for the most part people if I bomb it, it's silent and uncomfortable but it's very very rarely does anyone <laughs> say anything um uh I've been but I have been heckled a couple times and most of the time I've dealt with it okay I I think it's so surprising to me that I'm not uh that it kind of shocks me into saying whatever is the first thing on my mind, which is really what you want to do with a heckler is just kind of like be very natural and not have some, you know, if you try to come at them with some kind of um, prepared line, it just, it, it usually looks silly. Most of the heckling I've dealt with has been unintentional heckling. Like people, you know, I had a, a couple started a fight right next to me. I was, I was, ho I was hosting for, um, I think Judah Friedlander, Judah Friedlander was on the show that was at Rooster Tea Feathers. And I was about to bring him up and I was telling, going through, like, I was about to tell my final closer and this couple started arguing and a 
the and I I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know if I should address it because it was weird that I wasn't addressing it because they were being loud. And at the same time, I didn't want to draw attention to them. And then she threw a drink in his face. And then all of a sudden, you've got everyone looking at this couple and not looking at me. And I'm just standing there telling a joke like an idiot. And I did have to address it, but I I really fumbled that. That was one of those, you know, that was one of those moments where just in retrospect, you kind of look back and go, wow, there were so many things I could have said that would have been funny. And I didn't know how to deal with it. And I literally just pretended it wasn't happening and then kind of awkwardly stared at them. And then security came and kicked them out. And it just was terrible. It was just a terrible experience. That was one experience where, you know, you always kick yourself looking back and thinking of all the things you should have said and done. And I, you know, I, I didn't I didn't know what to do. I'm pretty sensitive and I'm not so sure. <laughs> I'm quick witted or I like to think I am. But you don't, when you that's the thing when you're up there, as you know, sometimes you can't even see out in the crowd. So if somebody's throwing something at you. It's a, it's a curveball that fortunately that I hadn't. And that's why I was curious because I, I, I hadn't had it yet. And if I go, when I try it again, how would I handle it or, and so forth? <laughs> yeah. Like I said, the toughest thing for me has been unintentional heckling. And there's this thing that people will do that they will try to help a show or they will try to be part of the show, but they're not intentionally like when I think of heckling, I think of someone saying like, you suck or like insulting you. But the the heckling that I've dealt with has always been people being encouraging or thinking that they're funny. I had a, a whole set where this woman kept laughing at the wrong times and she had this really loud laugh. And she, I don't know if she thought that things I was doing physically were funny or if she misinterpreted, she was anticipating a punchline. And so she would laugh before the punchline and she would laugh really loud right as I would. So she was stepping on the punchlines, right? Like before I would say the punchline about this person. Yeah. And it just throws off the whole joke. And I'm just looking at her like, what are you doing? And I couldn't figure out at first if it was intentional. And that's the kind of heckling that I've dealt with the most. And it's, it's, I could tell with her, it wasn't intentional, but it also was really off-putting and I didn't know how to deal with it because you can't shut that person down by being mean to them. You can't say, ma'am, stop laughing. That's, you know, that doesn't, that's not going to go over very well. Uh, so I had to, I did actually deal with that one pretty well. I kind of made a joke out of it where I would, every time I was about to say something, I would look at her and say, and, and wait for her to laugh. And I would say, did you get it out of your system? Are you good? Can I? finish the joke and she would like be like oh yeah yeah no i'm good and then i would like start with a punchline and i would look at her and wait and say are we good and then i would give the punchline and the, the audience thought it was funny and we kind of all we were able to kind of work through it but that's the the kind of heckling that i've dealt with is that and people saying things that are supposed to be encouraging they'll say like oh i know what you're talking about man or something in the middle of a show and they keep talking to you and you're like okay i appreciate that but you know shut the hell up like it's just that's hard to deal with because if, if they're being mean you can just kick them out you can just say like yeah shut the fuck up hey security you know uh, so yeah i mean mean heckling hasn't ever been a problem for me really but but what i have dealt with is just disruptions just people being unintentionally disruptive and and that's always really hard it's been fun uh i've enjoyed oh. our conversation even though it's, it's going serious to 
not so serious, but that's life, right? <laughs> yeah, we've been all over the map, but it's been fun. It's, thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on here and, and talk about everything from politics to uh, bombing on stage. These are <laughs> two of my favorite things to talk about. Anyone listening out there, please check out his podcast. Duncan McEwen, Midnight Facts for Insomniacs. And you can check uh, shanerogers.net. I do, that's where I have my schedule and my website and everything. And it used to be full of shows, and hopefully there will be uh, some in there again. So that is where my schedule will be once I'm back out and performing at shanerogers.net. But uh, in the meantime, Midnight Facts for Insomniacs. Hopefully, after the last three episodes with Tyler, Stephen, and Shane, you can connect the common threads of how podcasting offers the final frontier in creative autonomy. Next week, we begin a series of interviews I'm calling the Utopia Sessions, based on interviews with musicians performing at Utopia Fest, a music festival that happens twice a year and is unlike any event that I have ever experienced. The Utopia Sessions does not entirely capture the magic of attending the festival in person. However, I am thrilled to share a little of that magic with the YouTube videos and podcast episodes, where you will be able to watch and listen to an event that provides a uniquely strong sense of community that is full of love and unforgettable vibes of a place filled with mysticism that creates a longing desire to return for anyone fortunate enough to experience it. I actually can't wait to share the Utopia Sessions with you. Thank you for joining me on the journey inside the mind to the far reaches of the universe. I'm Tom Hartridge, and this is Neurons to Nirvana. Nirvana.